This is a Lip Media Podcast. Hi, it's me, Lauren, and I want to introduce you to a rad lip sister podcast, Queers. What the hell is queer theory? Who gets to identify as queer? Does it mean anything to call yourself a queer ally? These are the kinds of questions writers Benjamin Riley and Simon Copland ask on Queers, a discussion and interview podcast about critical queer politics and culture. Simon Copland is a PhD student in sociology in Canberra. He's a freelance writer with a focus on gender, sexuality, and politics. Yes! Benjamin Riley is a freelance writer and journalist writing about queer politics and culture, sex and gender and mental health. His work has appeared in publications including Archer, Junkie and Star Observer. In the episode that follows, Benjamin interviews writer and researcher Jaya Keeney about her work examining concepts of race in the stories of queer families who conceive kids using reproductive technologies, digging into what it means to reimagine the queer family in the context of race. Just like us, Queers is a brand new show on Lip Media, a podcast network for women and the LGBTQ plus community. Subscribe to Queers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. It's the 8th of July 2019. I'm Benjamin Riley, and welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and today we have an interview with writer and researcher Jaya Keeney. Jaya writes for a number of online publications and teaches queer theory at the University of Sydney, and her work examines kinship, queers of colour, critical studies of science, and reproductive justice. Earlier this year, Jaya completed her PhD, which studied concepts of race in the stories of queer families who conceive kids using reproductive technologies. And this is the work I wanted to talk to her about after meeting Jaya through my own research. We've spoken about queer families occasionally on Queers, but with a topic where the stakes can feel so high, I wanted to talk to an expert who thinks critically about some of the most challenging issues facing our communities. Enjoy the interview. So, elevator pitch for your... Elevator pitch. Your PhD. Jaya Yeah. Um, yeah, so my PhD was about the experiences of queer families um, in Australia that have kids via reproductive technologies, and specifically um, surrogacy and donor conception. And I focused on their experiences of race and their concepts of race, and did yeah did a number of interviews with them. But the sort of question at the heart of the research was. Um, if race and reproduction are really closely entwined, like we presume that race comes from your parents um, who had heterosexual sex to conceive you, and that's the way that your kind of bodily race and your identity both flow, what happens when queer people have kids um, in a different way? Does that mean they relate to race differently? Um, what can they tell us about race when it's detached from biological connection, but it's still an important part of the family? And what did you find? <laughs> yeah. I know, it's a, um, a, a small question, which I'm sure with, with I'm sure a million answers, but I guess yeah. particularly, did you find that participants wanted to replicate that uh, uh, biological relationship between mm-hmm. race and identity? I found a lot of things, and a bit of yes and no to your question. I found that even when parents decided to race match, which is what it's often called in clinical um, practice, and also the critical scholarship which is when um, a couple, it's presumed typically to be a couple, picks a donor that matches physically and racially the non-biological parent. Um, they'll, yeah, they'll pick to match to replicate that traditional family. I found that my participants had 
really quite nuanced ways of articulating the importance of that that weren't just about this kind of visible matching kind of thing, which is presumed why people do it, um, I think because the clinical practice presumes straight couples. Um, and in particular, a lot of my participants talked about how passing wasn't possible for them. And so it was more about um, sort of social reinforcement in terms of selling to the world that they're a family in the context of the oppression they were very aware they were going to face. What do you mean by passing? As in um, passing as if they'd conceived without assistance. Oh, okay. Was that because they might have been same-sex couples, for example? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So they, they felt that, that was it was going to be very evident already that they hadn't conceived without assistance. Okay. And so they felt that they kind of had this opportunity to reinvent the family form, hmm. which didn't necessarily mean through picking um, a donor of a different race, but just meant that they kind of had more nuanced articulations of race than just saying that it's a physical match that makes a family. What kinds of considerations went into uh, even thinking about, it feels funny to say, like, you know, picking a race for uh, for their child or for the, the surrogate or whoever was involved? Um, well, I mean, the race of the, choosing the race of the donor and the race of the surrogate varied mm -hmm. really widely. So I was really interested in the fact that choosing a surrogate is not often treated as a racialising decision um, because we presume that race comes from the sperm and eggs, um, not from the womb. And typically in surrogacy arrangements, you use separate eggs and a surrogate. So when people were picking a surrogate, they typically talked about either a pre-existing relationship um, or cost effectiveness. Obviously, in a transnational market that's stratified by racial difference, mm -hmm. cost is a racialising thing. But when picking a donor... I was surprised um, by the kind of diversity of motivations. So a lot of people, I mean, a lot of my participants chose people they already knew as their donors, and typically they chose people that they felt they had chemistry with. Um, but then a lot of other people chose, for example, um, in order to access a new culture and bring a new culture into their lives um, through picking cross-racially. And that was the other thing I really was interested in among my participants is that most of the literature says that people race match, but overwhelmingly my participants, like about half of them picked a donor that was not the same race as either them or their partner. What, what do you mean by bringing a new culture into their lives? Um, so some, that kind of was in the minority, but some participants said that it was an opportunity if they had to make a selection to pick someone of a different race to introduce diversity into their lives. Oh. For example, so one, I mean, and this, obviously the implications of that vary depending on your own racial identity. Sure, but sure. One couple I interviewed um, is a lesbian couple. The mother who carried and used her eggs was white and the other mother is Lebanese. And they chose a donor online, actually, who is Taiwanese. And the... Lebanese mother, the non-biological non mother, um, said that she really liked the idea of using a Taiwanese donor because the racial diversity of their family would reflect the queer diversity that was already present. Oh, that's actually really lovely. Yeah. So this kind of creative engagement um, with race that's still attuned to the, like the different power structures at play, yeah, that's lost in the idea of just just wanting to match because that's what a family looks like, you know. You know, that's, that's one example, I guess. I mean, c can you think of some other kind of uh, narratives that emerged in terms of why people might have 
uh, I feel that it's funny that I feel the language around this just feels so loaded, you know, yeah. uh, might have race match draw or not. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess some of the narratives that I found more concerning that emerged were among largely white parents that chose donors of a non-white race, either because they felt it didn't matter or because they felt that they, this kind of idea, they'd be introduced to a new culture. So one of the women I interviewed was a white lesbian. She had a white partner and they really, really wanted a black donor preferably or a donor of color because they felt they didn't have any culture themselves. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, Yeah. And a black donor would bring culture into their lives through the child. And I don't, I mean, I'm not interested in condemning any of their decisions, but more what interests me is like the total vacuum of conversation around what it looks like to actually raise kids of colour with an awareness of racism and a kind of empowered racial identity. And I think that in the queer community particularly that absence is concerning because if we're going to build sort of reproductive justice movements or think critically about how we could revolutionise parenting, we need to bring race into the conversation um, really centrally as well, not as an afterthought. Um, and also race, racial difference isn't adequately captured just in the response of having queer pride about our families, even though it's a good first step. Mm. I mean, did you talk to parents who perhaps further down the line had had to grapple with the implications of, say, like raising a, a kid that might have to deal with racism that they had never had to deal with? Look, I guess... The, the explosion in um, queer family creation through these kinds of technologies is relatively recent. How recent would you say? I think that there's been a real spike in the last 10 years. The first, I interviewed um, one guy who said that his child, who's, who was 10 at the time I interviewed him, I think two years ago, was one of the very first Australian kids born through surrogacy through surrogacy overseas or formalised surrogacy. Due to a law change or...? Just availability or...? Um, due to, I think, the availability of transnational markets, sure. which has really spiked in particular in the last five years, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, started to be more available in the last ten. Um, so, anyway, that was the oldest child whose parents I interviewed. But I did talk to some that had kids that maybe about four and five that were starting to talk about their racial identities. And I noticed that the main way it's dealt with is to minimise the impact of racial difference. Um, which I think is part of a broader kind of colorblind multiculturalism in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also sort of a lack of awareness about how kids might talk about race, which might not be in a clear language of sort of problems or struggles, but might just be, why am I different? Yeah, interesting. I mean, we clearly just don't talk about a lot of this stuff in right. queer communities, right? Can you imagine what more open conversations around? I guess the ethical dimensions of creating families through assisted reprodu- reproductive technology might look like. Is there a way to do that that's not going to immediately be explosive and confronting? Definitely. I mean, I think definitely. And I think queer, a lot of queer families are already doing it and have been chipping away at this for a very long time. I think that race often gets left out of those conversations. But, like, for example, every family that I interviewed had reflected on and discussed and planned how they were going to talk to their child about their donor conceived origins. Um, And some of them had incredibly well elaborated plans for how to start talking to their kids about how they were donor conceived in this really positive Mm. way from birth. Some of them had made these like beautiful picture books 
of the kids' whole kind of conception journey and the surrogate and really included those memories. So I think queers have a long history of doing that really well and of kind of um, open communication and honesty around different forms of family creation not being an absence or a lack. And I think those kinds of resources and community skills could be used to talk about race as well. Um, if we see race as part of the fabric of what creating a family always means to everyone, even white people, then building race into that in terms of, you know, really thinking critically about if your surrogate comes from India, but you have a white child, maybe you need to talk to them about Indian cultural connection, or maybe not, but just opening that conversation about what a kind of broader concept of racial identity, a queered concept of racial identity might look like rather than a sort of nuclear model of just like if your kid is conceived using white sperm and a white egg, that cuts out every other person that might be involved. Why do you think race in particular is such a taboo or is is missing from these sorts of discussions? Um, I think that, well, a few things. I think that the conversation around race and racism in Australia is pretty abysmal, although it's changing at a glacial pace. Um, and our sort of like predominant cultural response is either silence or turning bad feelings into good feelings by saying that um, really we're a colorblind society or we don't notice race or um, there's not really a big impact that race creates, especially if it's brought into the sort of loving space of the family, you know, to that. And then also I think the queer movement tends to be white dominated um, and it's difficult to have intersectional conversations when you feel like you're sort of on the back foot or constantly campaigning for basic rights. Um, and queer families in Australia continue to be really, really vulnerable um, and not legally protected. But I guess if we don't take intersectional approaches as the centre, like the, the platform for every kind of campaign, then it's very hard to break them in afterwards. This is a, uh, a space where I can imagine that it... it uh, as you've already alluded to, where queers potentially have to confront, uh, I, I guess, potential conflicts within our own uh, conceptions of family and conceptions of ourselves and our communities in a way that's maybe in conflict with the very, like, you know, the queer family as this kind of pinnacle of wholesome, right. um, uh, what's the word, respectable, uh, a respectable version of being queer. Yeah. Um, did those sorts of issues come out in the interviews at all in terms of people's people being kind of confronted by the possibility that they had uh, had to grapple with ethically challenging decisions or, uh, or or not made ones that they potentially felt completely comfortable with? I think, like, there was an investment across a lot of interviews and there's a very heavily felt responsibility that a lot of queer parents carry around about performing good stories um, of their lives and their parenting responsibilities to paint their communities in a good and their families in a good light and for their children and also because of the really real fear of persecution um, if they, you know, admit fault. So that's a difficult line to walk. But also there was some really powerful reflection um, in terms of how even, like, legal constraints um, in Australia being an altruistic-only jurisdiction mean that there's not many options for surrogacy. And so a lot of gay fathers in particular find themselves going overseas to access surrogacy services with surrogates they won't be able to build a relationship with in the future. And so some of their sort of parenting, like the ability to do family differently, is quite constrained by those legal frameworks too. I guess I'm, I'm interested in the the kind of intense drive to family at all that that leads um, people to to 
potentially very expensive or very um, uh, involved or complicated uh, reproductive uh, processes. Right. Um, how did did those sorts of things come out in terms of people talking about their um, I'm trying really hard not to use the word entitlement because I feel like it, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, immediately puts things in a negative context. But I guess yeah. I'm, I'm interested in the how people framed their own desires or drive or needs to have families and have those families look particular ways. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think obviously it's a very privileged group of people that can access the fertility industry in Australia, um, particularly as any kind of public funding is being squeezed out of the market. Um, a lot of my participants conceived with friends and family, um, and so that kind of lowers the cost. But I am really interested in how the fertility industry, I mean, you know, it's a global juggernaut. It's expected to be a $30 billion industry by 2023. Mm. A number of um, fertility companies have recently been floated on the stock exchange. So I think a lot of people I spoke with feel as if this narrative or this promise of choice that the industry sells to patients and also increasingly to queer people as a key target niche um, in the market is not really their reality at all. A lot of them felt that they didn't really have much choice at all um, and they had to participate in the narrative of choice but in these really constrained terms so what what do you mean they felt they didn't have any choice at all they didn't have any choice at all to do, to do as what? in i mean once they decided to make a family in this route i think that the kind of cultural impact of the fertility industry also is crowding out space for us to imagine other family making possibilities mm. or they don't get much airtime, even if they might be part of you know, part of people's practices as well. Like, it's not an either-or. I think that a lot of my participants have kids that are partly biologically related to them, and they also cultivate really powerful queer family networks that are not about um, biological Mm -hmm. or parenting ties. Um, But those things become harder and harder to place at the centre. Yeah, and, you know, I'm interested as well in how the latest um, frontier for a lot of fertility clinics is trans reproduction. Um, and the implications that might have in creating a lot of options for trans people to do um, fertility preservation before they transition with hormones if they want to do that, but also how it might create these sort of compulsory pronatal pressures. Hmm. I mean, um, can you can you give us any insight into what the uh, I, get, I guess I'd be fascinated to hear about it in relation to marketing to trans people, but even just to uh, same-sex couples, like what? What does what sorts of narratives are fertility uh, companies pushing? Yeah, well, I mean, they're pushing an image of a happy, completed queer family, just oh, like every other family. You know what I mean? And uh, this, I think, this has to do with the sort of corporate sponsorship and corporatization of queer movements across the board as well. Like um, number IVF Australia and Monash. IVF have been key funders of the Mardi Gras in the past few years. There was a recently opened branch of City Fertility Clinic, which is a long-established multi-state fertility clinic that's specifically for rainbow families. It's called Rainbow Fertility. Yeah, and the narratives are sort of beautiful, glowing, white, same-sex, cis couples with a child, usually white or maybe like a nice mocha tone, but that's the picture that is sold. Yeah, and queerness becomes a very reduced thing in those representations. Do you think we should be pushing back harder or at least being more vocally critical of the influence of these companies in our communities? 
Um, I think that we should subject them to some kind of critical scrutiny in terms of the fact that they sell a promise of the best way to make a family, but there are other ways to do it. While not wanting to sort of, I think they've created huge opportunities for queer people. But, you know, for example, I think that there should be more publicly funded IVF clinics um, that are easier to access. I think that would be a kind of middle ground that means that this sort of biological focused reproduction is not the primary thing for queer people. So uh, could you draw a link for me? Why would the publicly funded clinics open up opportunities in that way? Just because they create, like, they'd sort of broaden the pool out from people that can just afford to have, you know, multi-thousands of dollars of cycles of IVF. Sure. So just make it more accessible. So while we were chatting about doing this interview, I came across an article that I shared with you and would be curious to get your thoughts about uh, about a couple in the US who use a, a gay couple who used one of their mothers was the surrogate and the other one's sister was the egg donor, yeah. I believe is, was right. Yeah. Uh, and I guess it just really kind of struck me, uh, A, you know, that I would be speaking to you about assisted reproductive technologies, but I guess the the kind of from the outside, very bizarre way of yeah. creating a family that, to me, I guess, spoke to the extremity of the kind of imperative to biological uh, or genetic families uh, yeah. among some queer people. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, on, on the article. I mean, I'm in two minds. In a way, I think that that kind of family creation is a powerful, quite a powerful response to navigating a system that's fairly constrained, um, both financially, because... In the article, they talk about being, um, you know, not having disposable income to pursue anonymous donors and surrogates, um, but also maybe not wanting to create that totally sort of formalised or industry-based or anonymised um, family where, you know, you use a surrogate but you never meet again, mm, eggs sure, that you don't. Yeah, donor as a, an item in a catalogue kind exactly. of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think that the lengths that people go to are also definitely representative of this sort of this intensifying push to have genetic family. And so I'm really, I'm not sure about the extent to which that can be queered, but I think it's an open question, which relates not so much in the US, but in Australia also to the really, really um, limited options for adoption. Um, another thought that springs to mind is just like an interest in opening as a thought experiment, what it might be to think about those kinds of collaborative reproductive arrangements as monstrous in a queer way. You know, like, they make us feel yuck because they're a bit abject or they're a bit monstrous or they're a bit strange. It's because, you know, this person's 60-year-old mother gives birth to the child. Yeah, it's super... It, it's very unusual, right. you know? But why does that make us uncomfortable, yeah, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Why Good does question. a 60-year-old woman birthing a child make us uncomfortable? Maybe that's also an interesting queer route to think down because she's an inappropriate maternal body, like... Fantastic. Hmm. How did you get interested in all of this? It's a good question. I mean, apart from the apart from the personal investment in the, it's probably something that I'll have to think about one day because I might want to have a kid. Probably want to have a kid, um, and I'm queer. Uh, I think that this spike in family making raises really interesting questions for race and racial relatedness that are much broader than just queer family making. So I come from a mixed race family. Um, heterosexual. My parents are heterosexual. Um, but some of the questions about what it means to form a racial identity um, when you don't share the same identity as either of your parents um, and what it means to navigate difference and kind of 
bring together racial identities that feel in between with queer my queer identity that feels in between a lot of the time I saw really kind of interesting and diagonal um, resonances with the kids growing up in queer families many of which are multiracial yeah so that sort of took me into the project the way you were describing uh having to build narratives of race uh that are perhaps separate from your parents experience that already feels super queer right like exactly you know most most queer kids are not born into queer families exactly and that's that i think is another kind of avenue or resource that queers are really adept with that we could use to think about these kinds of racial affiliations as well like different kinds of horizontal identities which kids growing up in queer white queer parented homes that maybe are half Indian as many of my participants kids were both of them have navigated horizontal identities in their lives and thinking about what queer identity creation looks like for kids and young people that are growing up queer might help us think about what it looks like to grow up racially different in a queer family I think I can go into conversations around this topic uh very cynically and I I, I try hard not to to do that but yeah. I feel like you're you're really selling me on a much more um, uh, hopeful vision of this kind of family creation that that is uh, can can use queerness as a, as a point of empathy to to think about other kinds of identity as well. Right. Is that something that you that you kind of got from these experiences, or am I totally just no, like no, reading that's exactly too much into this? That's part of it, and also like try. I'm really interested in trying to think in an engaged and empathetic and open way about what it looks like to take reproduction seriously as a queer topic for making different worlds as well. I think that we have quite a long, powerful history of queer movements critiquing family creation and having children and parenting. But I think there are other possibilities and other genealogies, particularly from queer women of colour and queer feminists of colour that talk about mothering as a really powerful way to make the future different or to queer the future or to create different networks of care um, if we don't dismiss biological reproduction straight out as a heterosexual thing. You know, it doesn't have to be. Jackie, thank you so, so much. That was really wonderful. You're very welcome. Ben here again. I hope you enjoyed the interview. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the second part of Simon and my two-part discussion, Thinking Critically About Sex in Queer Politics. But in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via email at queerspodcast at gmail.com or we're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at queerspodcast. I'm on Twitter at Ben C. Riley and Simon is at Simon Copland on Twitter and at Simon Copland Writer on Facebook. You can find episodes of the podcast on our website, queerspodcast.com or subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or pretty much any other podcast platform. If you want to support the show, we also have a Patreon. Throw a few dollars our way at patreon.com slash queerspodcast. We'd very much appreciate it. We've also started publishing short pieces of writing on the page exclusively for subscribers. So if you signed up there, you'll get access to those as well. A shout out as always to our podcast network, Lip Media. We'd also love it if you checked out some of their other shows, all of which are LGBTIQ focused. And finally, if you're enjoying Queers, tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way we have to find new listeners. Thanks, as always, for listening.